Welcome to season six of the RAG podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. And this show has been around since early 2019. And every week, we are obsessed with finding out how the world's most successful and innovative recruitment agencies and their founders have got to where they are today. In season six, alongside the founder's story and the inside information of that business, I also want to focus on the reality of today's economy. There is so much noise about this inevitable recession that we find ourselves in right now. And where it's going to go, is it really having an impact on the recruitment sector? Are they seeing any change in job flow? Are they seeing any change in candidate control or activity? What is going on? I want to find out. So every single week, I want to forget the propaganda, forget the noise. I'm going to speak to a real life recruitment owner and find out what is going on in their business. I'll bring it to you every single Wednesday from 12 o'clock across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the RAG podcast. On this week's episode, I am really, really, really excited to be welcoming um, a very special guest. Um, This guy is called Laurie Boyle and the agency he owns and founded in 1987 is McGregor Boyle. For me, McGregor Boyle is a household name, probably because I operated most of my recruitment career in the city of London in the financial markets. McGregor Boyle is over 120 people, 35 years in operation, um, and is named after the the two founders, one of which is Laurie Boyle. Now, Laurie and I have, I didn't know him until um, I reached out to him to be on the show because it's a brand I've always admired and he's someone I always wanted to meet and talk to. Um, Annoyingly, we've took a four, maybe five times to record this program. This is the issue with remote interviews. The technology can fail and all sorts. So we finally got this episode recorded and uh, I believe it was worth the wait. Now, Laurie, in 35 years, has acquired so much knowledge, so much interesting, so many interesting insights into running a recruitment firm and also the honesty of what it takes to build a firm that you truly believe in and that aligns with your personal goals so he's never been a founder that wanted to exit. He's still got no intention of retiring after 35 years in at the helm. Um, and he said, one of the things that stood out about this episode is he said he's never, ever, ever got bored by what he's doing and who he's doing it with. He's always felt it stimulated him. And I think it's really, it's really refreshing to interview someone who's been as successful as he is, grows an agency like he has, um, and still wants to be there. And he's not actually interested in the scale and exit conversation that we've had on so many other episodes. So in this episode, you're going to find out about a guy who started his career selling travel, um, American travel tours in Europe. Um, he then turned into an, he, sell, he was a self-taught IT programmer in California, launched a recruitment firm, having never done a day in recruitment in his life. And has since built one of the most uh, well-respected agencies in the UK and specifically in London with international offices as well. Um, anyone who looks to grow a business either now or in the future, you're going to like Laurie, you're going to, you're going to empathize and relate to him and you're going to learn a lot. So let's get cracking without further ado. Laurie, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's the second time we've tried to record this, mate. We got, I think it was 30 minutes in when I was in LA about two, three weeks ago and it was brilliant. The only reason you brought that up, you just want to tell everyone you're in LA all the time. So you know, that is, that is partly what I'm trying to. I'm trying to drop, drop it. But, if you want to um, have a fine, you know, just give me a script. Okay, I'll do it. 
<laughs> I do remember how good it was, and then my internet died, and uh, so yeah. it is. I'm delighted to have you on. But um, look, I think the name McGregor Boyle is pretty popular and pretty well known. But for anyone who hasn't got a clue, who you are. Could you just start by giving us the overview of you and the business today? I don't want the backstory. Just if the bird's eye numbers and sure. you know a bit about the company. We're a mid market. By that I mean we're not a, um, a fluffy search firm. Um, we're not a Nike volume blah, 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 firm. We're somewhere in the middle. Uh, we're London based, but we have UK offices. We have international offices. A lot of technology, a lot of it in financial markets, financial services. But we do other stuff as well. So we do have other sectors, but primarily financial services. But we do HR, we do marketing, we do risk, we do compliance. But if you have to say, where's the epicenter? Yeah, it will be technology and financial services. Right, and there's a hundred in Dubai and you know Warsaw, and we're looking at New York at the moment, things like that. So that's us roughly. Yeah, and is there a hundred of you or so? Uh, yeah, hundred, hundred plus, hundred twenty probably now. We've grown, grown a bit over the last, like a lot of people over the last year and a half. Yeah, we, we always like to staff up just before a good recession. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember last time. I want to get into it. We, I mean, you started. What year did you start, McGregor Boyle? Eighty-seven. That was it. And your you, you, your story of getting into that was interesting because you didn't work as a – you weren't a recruiter before, were you? No, no. My first day of recruitment, my own company. Yeah. Yeah, that's – so tell us a story. How did you get into recruitment? What? Where did that all happen? Yeah. Um, for my sins, uh, I was intending to be an academic. Right. Um, but I, although I embraced the life of the mind, I find I wasn't really happy embracing the life of poverty. Yeah. Um, so I decided I want to make a bit something else. And I used to take a lot of money, a lot of money tax-free. I didn't say that, by the way. Don't, don't recall that bit. Um, <laughs> taking American high school students and university students around Europe. And they were educational tours, the academic bit. Uh, so very often you've got adults who came on tours. They didn't want to go on a shopping trip. They wanted to go on, visit museums, visit the churches, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's what I used to do a lot of. And one day... I was finishing a season, end of the summer, and there was this America, a number of adults coming down. I took them from London down to Rome via all the, all the sites in Europe, you know, the rest of it. Um, and the end of it, he said, if you're ever in American California, come and see us, this guy. And I, he, was an imp- he was impressive because he could do things I couldn't do. He could always get to a hotel in the middle of summer and get ice before I could. If you get <laughs> ice in Italy, that'd be whiskey and do it, you know, as a punter, that's clever. Yeah. So I did that. I went back. I went to America. And he actually meant it. He said, you know, people say, you know, come and visit me. They mean, don't come anywhere near me. Yeah. And that's what they really mean. But he actually meant it. I went and stayed with him. And he, in California, and he says, mm, you know, this is great. Why don't you do it for yourself? Why don't you, you know, very careful. Why don't you sort of, you know, become your own travel company? I said, well, I haven't got the expertise. I haven't got the money. And he said, oh, don't worry about the money. And that's always a good sign. Mm. Um, and then he said, let's go and have, let's go and relax. Let's take my plane to Reno. And I thought, this is okay. I'm in here. Yeah. Um, and eventually what happens, we set up a company, didn't it? Worst possible place in the world to set up, California. Not only is it, it's, it's not just 3,000 miles, 6,000 miles from Europe. It's 3,000 miles from New York, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the worst place for volume travel to Europe for poor students. Okay. Yeah. And what happened, we were losing money because we couldn't get volume discounts on airlines because these tickets were so expensive. And Californians tend to travel two or three weeks. 
who had really mm. wanted, wanted to follow him off the East Coast who's traveling over Easter for a week. Yeah. And so you yeah. get 10,000 tickets, you get big dad, big, mm. big reductions. We were getting 2,000 pricey tours, but no reductions. So what we had to do was find, and it was literally 150 bucks a head, roughly, to be competitive. And the only way we could find we're doing that, I was in the right place at the right time, is all the big, big travel companies on the East Coast were using minis and mainframe computers, software houses. We happened to be in the place where PCs were being launched. Microsoft was starting, Apple was starting. It was almost failing by that point before it came up again. You know. And I, we found 100, but we, I took myself the program and bought PCs and little local area networks no one ever heard of, um, and did it myself in the basement there. Well, not quite in the basement, but in the ground floor. But what did you actually build then? You built <clears throat> a marketing system, a reservation system, a hotel booking system, you know, just simple, starting small, you know, to scale up. Um, but we found 150 bucks a head. No, no big, big, hardware charges at all and no big software company charges wow. and a guy who really knew what he was doing an amateur guy did it freelance he came in literally sat down pc and programmed it together and then he went off and i just took over wow. and i mean I, I got to know about the rise of personal computing from day one virtually um, then what happened is after four years five years the company didn't go near because it got hit by terrorism you know you yeah. cannot take you cannot take students universities and schools to Europe when there's what they call a government advisory from the American government that means you can't get insurance. So what year is this the early 80s then this is yeah it was 87 it was clearly, you know it was clearly Lauro there was a, a hijacking of a, a, a liner there were various things it was TWA and Jordan things you know people read about the history books when they're as old, young as you and people as old as me lived through them and it just got hit one day we had thousands of passengers the next day we had four Right. Well, 4,004, you know. And then I thought, this is it. I, you know, I certainly had a good time in good time in California, but it was time to come home. Uh, I had um, I had a girlfriend who, who keeping that game for 6,000 miles, she's now, you know, the uh, mother of my children and all that. They managed to keep it going. It was time to go back. And I came back, as I keep on saying, I came back to Gatwick flying first class, all the champagne in the bar, you know, because yeah. I used to buy airline tickets. That's what the job was. So you got free travel. And also, I was yeah. a terrible flyer then. And so I'd get, you know, I imbibed a little bit before I got on the plane. So <laughs> I came back hungover by the time you get back here after the 13-hour flight as a Gatwick. And I was there in the arrivals with about 12 suitcases, all my possessions for three years, uh, no job nowhere to live, a girlfriend who was late. So she looks like she, you know, saw her prospects diminishing or my prospects diminishing. And there I was. I had to do something. And the only thing I could think of doing because I didn't want to become an academic. No. I didn't want to become in the travel industry. I've done enough of that. It's, you know, I liked the computer bit. I was hooked on that side of it, the PC side, not the you know, mainframes at the base, but all that all, all the, all the exciting innovative at that time. And um I thought, how do I get a job? And silly me, naive me, I go to Yellow Pages, and it's a computer recruitment. And I went through the computer recruitment process, and it was appalling, absolutely appalling. Um, I, you know, that day, there was no email, by the way. It was pre-internet. No. 
I said this. I faxed off my CV to a number of people. They faxed it, or must have faxed it, copied it, faxed it off. I got calls saying, these people want to see you. Can you arrange your own interviews, please? You don't think about the jobs? No. Okay. What they know about me? Well, what you said to us, your CV. So I went along to six interviews, and I remember three rejections from big banks, part of the calls, uh, and three decent job offers from sales companies. Uh, and one of them was actually providing new technology training to investment banks, designing it and delivering, training the trainers and delivering the first courses to the high level users. Yeah. They had no idea what a computer was. I mean, I'm talking about directors of banks. So yeah, yeah, told, yeah. you've got to learn to use a computer. You've got to know what a spreadsheet looks like. Wow. And their thing would be quite literally to go, and, well, I'll get my secretary to do that for me. And that, that world was changing, but they didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like those things. Then one day, being nosy, like, there I knew I could be a recruiter because all recruiters are nosy. We know about that. <laughs> I saw the invoice for my replacement fee on the FD's desk. And I thought, effort free, skill free way of making a living. How much? And how much was it? Can you remember? Oh, it was tiny. I mean, it must have been 4K. 20, well, I was probably on 18 to 20,000 when I came yeah. out. About 4K now. You know, this would be this, this wouldn't get you into commission range, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the way it was, you know, it just what happened. Um, so one of the people I was working with, his wife was in recruitment or HRE recruitment already. Um, we got together, just talked about it, and I went back to California for some more money, please. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that she, so the very good partner, very well, came very, very and I got together, got the same funding. And you know, Bob is your uncle, etc. I was away, and, part, and I didn't know what I was doing in recruitment, but I knew a bit about technology, and I was in the right place at the right time. You know, right so, so the guy in America, what obviously he backed you, he liked you, he, he trusted you, and you're this he's a mentor, he's the ultimate angel, angel. Yeah, but you're a ball of energy who's done pretty well. But yeah. what, what, what did he say when you came over with the recruitment idea? He obviously, what was his, what was his, uh, what was he his just, tower, you know, he said he was in he was deep into computers himself. You know, he's one of those guys, he was like 10, 15 years old than me, so he's probably I was in the 30s, about 45. He went back to school with computers at the weekends, he built his own hardware, he got yeah. bits and pieces, he taught it, you know, he knew the program. Um he just well, hey, two things, either sounds exciting, and number two, is there money in it? Yeah, you know. Um the answer was yes, it was exciting. And yes, there was money in it, and this money. So, you know, say first day in the job, I owned a bit of a recruiting company, and then I learned on the job, you know. And yeah. what happened, of course, is I thought I'd end up doing the technical side because I knew about technology and interviewing. I ended up actually selling sales yeah. and sell to new technology companies. Um, so let's go then, back then. So when you launched McGregor Boyle, yeah. take us back to the first, like, what did it look like on day one in 1987? I'm a one-year-old child at this point, so it's... Okay. Uh, I wasn't in LA. I wouldn't say to you what I'm going to say to you. It was a shit show. Um, the reason why, actually, one-year-old children know quite a lot about that, don't they? Um, the the reason why is quite simple. You get funding. You've got funding. You've got money. You've got you know, America. It's great. Uh, but what happened was you needed even the comms. You needed what you need to be a recruitment site. So you probably need a telephone, no mobile. Yeah. You need a landline. You need mobile phones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you had this newfangled thing called faxes, which were about, you couldn't know about two and a half thousand pounds each at that point. Wow. You couldn't raise money. So these weren't little 95 page job, you know. When you sort of, yeah. So you got all those things, but you need a fax line, a telephone line. And the day, virtually the day we set up, 
And obviously in Windsor, by the way, for historical reasons, because part of the Cambridge couldn't work, shows you thought we thought anywhere near a previous company in London. British Telecom went on strike, BT went on strike. And they wouldn't install new lines and they wouldn't repair broken lines. And that, if you dependent, you're you know, literally you're burning through cash without being able to do anything. So you said briefly there, and I remember when we discussed last time, you said you started in Windsor because yeah. just backtrack a bit. What why did you start well, in Windsor? Yeah. Well, she worked for a company, um, okay, and she had a restrictive covenant. She couldn't right. work within 20 miles of her existing company in competition. And so we respected that. We thought, well, no, no. And Lloyd said, well, technically, da, 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 da. and this was in the good old protective sort of practices days. So we set up in Windsor, and you know, lo and behold, day two, they said to her, well, if you need an interviewing space, you can use our offices if you like. Oh, wow. So where, we where were you both living? Were you living out there? Or? No, we were living, like you were both living in West London, so it was a reverse commute. Yeah. That yeah. was the easier bit of it, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it's still a commute. You don't end the day. You don't get trapped yeah. you off the car unless you have to on the, you know, on the A and the M4. Um, but we were in Windsor, and actually, you know, I'll come back on that story, but actually it was a godsend by mistake. I'll tell you right. why. In a moment. But when we set up, we had no telephone line, and luckily, right outside the little office had was a red telephone box. I mean, right? it's just ridiculous. Um, it worked because they weren't repairing lines. If it didn't break down, you were fine. But if it broke down, they wouldn't repair it and you're dead. But, but we didn't have anything out of new lines. They weren't installed or working. So what I did, what I had to do was quite literally go and grab the telephone box, put an out of order sign on it, literally out of order, and, we had to take, and monopolize that telephone box. Now, it's so long ago, I'm trying to remember how it worked. And the way it worked was I made the calls out, and the someone said, I'll give you a call back. So, oh, no, no, I'll give you a call back. Don't worry. Because incoming was always a bit dodgy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had to keep it permanently out of order. So every time I went back in, I put the out of order sign on it again, then come back and take it off and do it. So I think it's about three weeks. I mean, three weeks. Three weeks of. Did you ever get to a point where someone was just in there and you were like, "Oh crap, are you?" Why did you go into the telephone box out of order? Because it says out of order on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very clever. Very clever. Necessity, you know, that was the only option until the strike was. Uh, Where were you getting the numbers from? Were you using the yellow pages at that point? Oh, computer Weekly Computing, the old magazines, and those good old days used to have it was ambulance checking. It was yeah. the ads running, have you had any response? Can we, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was raking over the embers. If it, you know, if you want to know a way of not setting up a company, we did it. <laughs> um, it was mature mainframe software, essentially, run by adverts, same adverts, time after time, no internet advertising, classified it. So it's all really expensive publication. Yeah. And it wasn't going to work. But here I come back to the old, the Windsor, the old part of it. At that time, um, Windsor was, it was in that corridor, the M4, M3 corridor, where American software firms set up. Yep. Yeah, Thames, it's, they're ready. You know, it's not a Silicon Valley because nothing's ever made there, but you know, it's a it's yeah. operation. It's the old joke, you know. Um, you know, well, it's not the old joke. American software companies set up near Heathrow. That's what they do. Yeah. You know, yeah. fly in the VP International, fly into Heathrow. But uh, it's not like I used to say they built Heathrow near Windsor Castle. It doesn't work that way. Will no. Windsor Castle near Heathrow? Um, but it happened to be one really successful American software company in Windsor. Okay. And it was called, it was the first ever spreadsheet, proper spreadsheet, Lotus 123. It's an old thing called Lotus 123. 
eventually they made Lotus Notes was bought by IBM, but it was, yeah. you know, it got crunched by Excel, uh, by Microsoft Excel eventually. Microsoft was the, you know, the, the giant squid, whatever you want to call it. But it was very successful at that point. It built, it was the application that built PCs as business tools because they were perceived before that as word processors. Yeah. But suddenly when you put Excel on, it became a business tool, which it, and, and Microsoft realized that, you know, and IBM realized they jumped on it. Um, they were in Windsor. They were set up in Windsor as their headquarters, their European headquarters. So what I did, I went around with what you know, a compliment, what used to be called compliment slip, you know, things mm. like that. And I went around and I sat in their reception and asked to see their HR manager. And he came down. <laughs> I can't believe it. He came down and he said, and we chatted, and I said, I know I've done this stuff with you know, I understand Lotus ones, you know, I mean, okay. He said, Well, I'll give you a trial vacancy. He said, we're looking for a sales support secretary. Okay. Uh, and I thought, okay. He said, I'll give you a go. And we found him a sales support secretary to work for the sales support manager, the hotline manager, the post yeah. And that was the first place we, we ever did. How long was that in the journey? Can you remember? That was about, it was about three days before we ran out of cash. Um, you know, it was yeah. all, that sort of about about four to five weeks. And the American, was the American yeah. guy thinking, is this going to happen? No, he would have hung in love with that. He, yeah. you know, he always said, you know, how long is he going to take to make money? I said that. He said, okay, let's double it. You know, that's the reality. He'd been in businesses. He's funded them before. Um, but that within a year of that sales support secretary, we were doing most of their salespeople, most of their marketing people, and quite a lot of the high level marketing people throughout Europe for them. That was our launch customer. That was the that was the airline that said, okay, we'll try your new Boeing or your new Airbus. Yeah, yeah. That was the one that counted. The end was it wasn't the anchor client, the opposite was the launch client. Hmm. And they got us going in. What was interesting is that after a year, we wanted to be back in London because I think Big Bang was going, was going on, had gone on in 86. So the banks were hiring like that. That's where the money was improved. Um, and it's like the old fashioned thing, why do you rob banks? Because that's where they keep the money. Why do you go to recruitment in London? Because that's where the banks are there. Yeah. yeah. A lot going on. And we moved back into London. We took up this big first mobile phone we ever had, which was a big lump of brick. It must have weighed about five kilos. With <laughs> as that temporary phone address in this tiny little serviced office we got. Um, and we realised, and it was still hard. Is it just you and your part, you and your business partner? Yeah, there were about five of us by then. Right. It was still, you know, it wasn't big, but it was you know bigger than just two of us, two and a half of us. You know, our assistant at AA. Um, but then what happened, it was going nowhere. And I, you know, I thought, what are we going to do? And there, I think there's certain times, most companies, you bet the farm. Sometimes you have to bet the farm. You know, you have to say, oh, we bet the farm. What do you um, mean? Bet the farm? Well, you put all, you know, you put everything on one, you know, just everything on one last play of rolling dice, really. Right? And what they did was to put, we, what was different about us, we knew about NU, PC computing, serious, worked for a key player in that market. Um, and so we put together a list of candidates with those skills, okay? 
print it because it was no interest. You couldn't email attachments and things like that. Literally mailed about a thousand of these 16 anonymous key candidates, these skills, to the banks. And we were flooded with response. They had this new technology stuff, these PCs, these uh, client servers, these local area networks, and the applications that were with them, the word processing, the Excel, the, the beginnings of the data. So the world you knew was starting yeah, to. Yeah, the world I knew is the world that was coming rather than the world yeah. that was past. Our competitors were still in them. I have, we're living the past slightly. Yeah. So we were ahead of the curve. And it's always hard to be that because it's all these things about breeding edge, leading edge, leading edge. You know, at what point you jump in on the market? If you're too soon, you know, like the pioneers, the arrows in the back. If you're too late, you've missed it. So you have to time it. We have to time that one right. Mm. Luck, and judgment, but no looking back after that. No looking back. It just wow. took off. So what, what was your role like in the business over that the next, say, five years? That's it. I thought I was going into someone who knew about technology, can interview candidates from a technical perspective, talk to clients at the technical level about what they want or whatever. <clears throat> what it became was a bit like I'd done in the academic thing and the tour thing ended up being what I, not what I intended. Um, so I became the salesman hmm. and the general manager and a bit of everything. Um, it's like that, the old adage, you know, experience is what you end up with when you set out to do something else. It was like that, okay? I set out to do one thing, I ended up doing something else. Um, and I became a general manager at a growth growth engine, a salesman, marketeer, good marketing. Yeah. We were innovative in our marketing as well. You know, we were the first recruiting company to put, have, uh, to put posters on the tube. And then Canary Wolf, well, before Canary Wolf, and then in Canary Wolf. Um, it just wasn't seen as the right thing to do. It, was, uh, it worked brilliantly. We put uh, we put adverts into new, you know, new newspapers, graduate things. We just did things differently because we had to. But then it became exciting. That was part of the fun, doing mm. things differently. So, you know, there you go. Where do you think you got that sales edge from? If you were, you oh, were that, no, yeah, that was simple. That was simple. Um, you know, it, I went to when I was doing the say when I was doing the international travel bits or the American travel. One of the things they used to like to do when you were a tour guide with your nice English accent, the American company, the ones in they're all on the East Coast. Most of them are in New England, somewhere Boston, or somewhere near Boston. They used to. Come back and spend, hey, we'll pay you for a couple of months to sell because all the nice people you send to who are teachers, because if you get five kids to go, the teacher went free. So it's via teachers and lecturers. They love an English accent. They just love a British accent. Okay. So while I was doing this tour guiding in the academic, I used to go to Boston, sit there and sell telesale to American teachers at home. Yeah. And so I'd end up calling time zones. You know, you just crawl your way through America as they woke up. And you end up calling people at home and selling tools. And we used to do a bank of us, about 20 of us. Lovely little, you know, lovely little British accents. Very posh, it sounded very posh. <laughs> With a sales manager, which I'm just absolutely, and this guy, actually he was a, he was, he was a British guy, actually he was Scottish, a bit mad, but, he's yeah. a, but he used to have a hunting hall. And his training process, if you said the wrong thing, you get the hunting horn, you squeeze it in your ear, and it'll boom like that. You have this great klaxon in your ear, that hunting horn. And you learn to tell you sell. You learn to sell. But what was really interesting about that was it wasn't it gave you a sales technique, because those could be acquired. But it was the first time I realized that selling is a profession. It's not mm -hmm. something to be ashamed of. No. 
you know, in, if you if you're a sales bloke, call it in the UK, in England, at those time, at that time, and even now a bit, you know, if you go and meet the parents, the future parents, well, they're a bit disappointed. You're, you know, it's a salesman. You know? Yeah. In America, it's a it's an honourable profession. Of course, it is. Yeah. And in America, if you start up a company, if you haven't started one up and failed already, then you, know, you haven't even started yet. It's it's not selling is not dishonourable, and starting up and becoming and failing is not dishonourable. Just go again. Whereas in England, always a salesman, always a bankrupt. It's it's changed. It's a lot better than it was. But that's what what I learned in America wasn't the technique of selling. It's to stand up and be proud of something. It's a profession. You're providing a service. Don't be ashamed of it. Yeah. Don't worry if you go bust. I kind of gone bust in the first one. Not bad for but you, know, you go. So that's what it, that's what I really learned from there. And I learned it in cold calling telesales in America. You know. And what impact do you think that that confidence that you obviously um, showed in the early days of McGregor Boyle? What impact do you think that had on the business? Both in very, that you know. Let's call it you know, can do attitude. Yeah. Mm. Um, it had. It allowed me to launch it, stay with it, believe in it. It's possible, it's doable, it can do. <clears throat> it's very good for startup and early growth mode. Uh, I've always, you know, I, I've always said and continue to say, uh, up to about 30 employees, I was the, I was the, I was the engine. Yeah. Past 30 employees, I'm not sure that I, you know, I think I became more, perhaps more the problem than the solution. In the so let's talk, of, let's talk about that. What, what point did that, did you reach that 30 employees? How long into the journey was it? Very rough. We changed, we had five offices in six years expanding. Wow. So, and when you haven't got a lot of money, you're paying for office space. It's a service business. You're not, it's not like software. We, you know, we didn't invent Google, we didn't invent Facebook. It was so we probably got to 30 in three years. Yeah. Third, no, less than that, less than that, two years, two, two and a bit years. And then we got to 50 or 60 in four years, something like that. And all of that was no acquisition. It was all internal growth, you know, it was organic growth. And also, there comes a point where, you know, if you want to Uber go into Uber growth mode, you probably go private equity and all the rest of it, not angel money. And so I just made choices there that I didn't, I didn't go for an equity flip. You know, my great world stage seven years old. I didn't have you know, selling it for early flip or making fortunes. It was, it was more, more for me to do with independence. Yeah, than it was to do with raising fast sums. You know, you know, I'm not saying I, I, you know, I do regret not having set up Facebook, you know, I'd rather, you know, oh, that wouldn't have been bad, you know. I've got the over the disappointment, you know, cushioned by the billions, that would have helped, you know. Okay, you know so. Did but, you, I've got a couple of questions going from Ed, but the yeah. first one is, what were the symptoms of you being no longer the solution? Like, tell us what sort of signs were there when you got to a certain size that perhaps, like you say, you went from being the engine and I think this is a common problem for recruitment founders and business owners in when they get to a certain size. So what what starts to happen or what do you start to witness to know that things are perhaps not quite as they were? Well, the simple one, and probably the least, but you just start dropping the ball things. You know, you, you, you over, entrepreneurs are, I'm, I'm not really an entrepreneur, but people who run the companies, set up companies, they're slightly emotional dysfunction. You know, mm. we all get a bit challenged. Yeah. Um, um, Control freaks. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can do it all yourself, you think, you know, you th- A, you can think you can do it all yourself. And B, even when you haven't done it all yourself, you think you have done it all yourself. So there's that degree <laughs> of unrestrained ego. 
Um, that happens. Number two is that um, to spout a cliche, you know, our greatest assets are our people. Who doesn't say that? Yeah. You know, who actually says, actually, well, I, the reason we've grown is actually, I don't give a toss about the employees. No one ever says that, do they? Um, they say, but if you are a, cons if you are a recruitment consultancy, be honest. What recruitment consultants you know that it, you know is unique? That actually does something nobody else does. If you can name it, great, because I can't. You can do it a bit better. You can insert some quality. You can do it more, I think. But essentially, the process is that you, you know, you're governed by it. It's about the quality of the people. It's, it's who does it as opposed to what's being done. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's like it's like law of legal firms. It's about the quality of the consultant. Okay. If you haven't got that right, then everything else is going to be wrong. And managing recruitment consultants, managing people is actually what sustains the growth. It's that becomes the hardest thing. <clears throat> most, most over time, the most difficult thing of running recruitment consultancy is actually having good people managing them, retaining them, motivating all those good things. Markets, yeah, they're really important, and we're about to find that one out, I think. But, but you see your way through a market if you've got the right underbedding of you run a consulting firm. You know, imagine what a legal firm would be like if you actually candle the lawyers to save money. Yeah. Um, not a firm. Same thing, you know, don't dispense with that awareness of people, the time it takes. And so where I became the problem is that unless you've got the time to spend all the time, that much time individually with bar in larger numbers of individuals, it will crack, it will creak. And I didn't understand that, that I only had so much time and I didn't platform that in the way of either an HR director or a people director early enough to scale properly. Right. So you didn't build the foundation. You didn't build the foundation around you. Yeah. Uh, and also, I'm a bit impatient, you know, um, and you're not more haste, less speed. You're impatient with people, but you have to be patient with people to grow further. I'm interrupting today's episode to mention our sponsor. Talent Ticker are here to help everyone who are in such a candidate short market, right? So if you're looking to grow your recruitment business in 2022, you know candidates are important and Talent Ticker are here to help. What they do is they help recruiters work smart and not hard. They've got over 300 agency clients, recruitment agency businesses that use Talent Ticker, and that helps them connect to the right person at the right time for the right reason. Okay, it also automates a lot of monotonous tasks we use and provide simple tools to identify ideal and off-the-grid candidates, people that are under the radar for open roles. So if you like the sound of finding more deeper-level talent that's not exclusively on LinkedIn, for example, then get over to www.get.talentticker.ai forward slash hoxo. You'll find the link in the episode. Go and take advantage of the special offer they've got on there for our listeners. Would you say you had that natural, because I often find that, I mean, I think I can empathize with what you've done in, in, I'm not saying I've done it anywhere near to the level, but the early days of being the engine room and the visionary and just going out there, that's me, the sales guy, the person that, you know, I started a business in an area I've never done and, you know, I've done that. But I don't think necessarily I 
I am the best people manager. I'm not, I don't think I'm a bad people manager, but I'd, I'd say if, if I took me and my business partner and I analyzed our skills, he is definitely a more well-rounded structural leader of people than I am, you know? Um, how did you find that going from being the kind of, you know, the superstar out there, so, raining rainmaker to having to look inward most of the time? Did you? Um, I think I, I think I ducked the issue, avoided the problem. Right. Or not by being running away from it, but trying to overcompensate or displace it. Um, I'm a decent, decent salesperson. You know, evidence would say that. It's not me trying to beat myself up. Evidence yeah. would say that. But I'm a better marketeer. And I, what I tried to do and did was if you can't manage the, the push, the salespeople, try and really grow the pull, the marketing, the brand. Yeah. So I try to actually let the brand do a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Rather than having lots of people on phone selling. It's a different approach. And then really, ideally, you should have both. It's exactly yeah. what my business my yeah. model is, right? You know, I remember um, the guy I sold to eventually, who was the European CEO of this Lotus firm before it got crushed by Microsoft or by IBM. He was a marketeer by training. He was actually a actually a scientist by training, became mm. a marketeer. And I went you know, into his office to talk about having building a European marketing team. But he had a big banner over his desk. And he just said, nothing happens till someone makes the sale. And he was a marketeer that was sensitive and genuinely appreciating good salespeople, as, a, as opposed to thinking they were a bit, a bit better than salespeople. Yeah, and marketing departments can think they, you know, in FMG maybe that's right, but in the business you get a lot of both. You get the both ways, don't you? You get the salespeople that don't respect the market and they think they're just. Well, I, I won't tell you. But I will one day. I will tell you what I think about old-fashioned marketing in certain industries. Okay, you yeah, know, how old-fashioned you know? If anything deserved to have a Me Too movement put all over it, it was that you know. Right. You know, that type of marketing. I, I'm not going to refer, I've got a phrase, but I will not put it on this podcast. I've got a <laughs> so, so you start to spot the signs are there, the yeah. symptoms are there, and you're 30 odd people, three years or so in. Now, what did you then do to make change and how did the business evolve moving well, after? Well, you know, you can argue over that period of time. It hasn't changed. It's three times size, not 10 times size. Yeah. Um, I, I still think to a certain degree, we wanted to remain a privately owned company run by the people who own, own and manage all the rest of it. Um, I've got a right-hand woman called Jenny Pitt, who's my AA, part our admin assistant. When we started, the two of us, Kay and I, and her part-time. She now has been for a year. You know, She's still here, thanks to She's a finance director. She's a natural finance director. She's Maybe. tied to life with the money, the council, uh, blah, 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 fantastic. Um, she did a lot of the HR stuff. PR, just get to know people and pay them. People know that she, you know, hand absolutely handed out back office. It runs. We have a fantastic back office system. We have you know pre-employment screening for contracting. You know the the actual controls we have is just fantastic. I didn't have to do that. Anymore. I didn't have to program any of that anymore. Or anything like I programmed our first recruitment system. Yeah, you know, I couldn't resist that one, could I? <laughs> um, you know, but you know, eventually, you know, you grow, you buy, you know. By industry standard ones, I've got to think. Hired in some good people, some good consultants. 
Um, and let them do some of the growth. So I, have, I had in the last 10 years, I had a fantastic group of people officer. People, you know, she, you know, I don't know what type is. Yeah. She, she does it, you know, and she and she's also run P and Ls in her own time and run sales teams. So she's not she's not sidelined from the business as a sort of a support operation. She's called yeah. and to it. But I couldn't keep the company together without her. So um, you have to learn to share. You have to learn to devolve, and then make your mind up. Do you want to go for the fast growth and the sale? Do you want to stay in it? Do you not want to stay in it? You have to. Align your medium and longer term goals to actually what you really want. So when did you start looking at those goals and thinking, so 37 years in now? I think what happened, well, I I got sidetracked, you know, at a certain point, um, you know, it became a lifestyle business. Sorry, 35 Um, years. When I say lifestyle, I don't mean it went up my nose. I don't don't talk about that sort of lifestyle business. You know, I, I have kids. I had teenage kids. I had a son who's good at sport. I spent, you know, far too much time watching my son play cricket far parts of England, you know, when I should be in the office doing that. So it became a cruise, a bit cruise control. Um, what years would you say that? What years were they? Oh, God, let's think, he was like 25, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 15, right. 20 to 15 years, that space when he's coming, you know. Um, he was the age, between the ages, you know, which they start to talk to you and which they finish talking to you. So what's that, 10 to 16, something like well, that? Realistically, would you... You say that you know you should have been in the office, but actually, isn't it amazing that you 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 managed to see those moments? Yeah, you know, yes, it is. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with lifestyle businesses if you know why and what. You don't abandon or ignore things, or yeah. you know, maybe a little bit of that, but not totally. So I've always stayed in a bit. Um, yeah, you know, I'm comf- I, I align my goals and ambitions and they've more or less stayed aligned why do you set up a firm why do you keep it going why do you cease that that firm so the output the end goal has to be aligned with what you want from it i wanted somewhere i could work in where i was independent um i've i've i've, I've softened i've calmed down a bit as i got older but when i set mcgregor boyle up my phrase about myself was that i was unmanageable going on unemployable right so I was at that point, I had to make a call. <clears throat> what I would do, I'll get into all the rest of it, yeah? And I wanted something that gave me independence, gave me no boss. I, I'm a terrible, terrible employee. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't wish me on anyone, okay? <laughs> and I wouldn't employ anyone like me or keep them employed, okay? Because I was stroppy, obstreperous. I was, you know, I'm not big, I don't share my toys, you know, properly, you know, I'm not, so I had to find something where I could sustain and keep myself occupied and keep myself engaged. And I'm absolutely, ancient as I am, long ago, absolutely engaged by McGregor Boyle still. Hmm. Now, there are all sorts of perversities about that. Because what have I gone through? You know, if you look at it, I've gone through a setting up all the, all the crap that comes in the startup and the tensions. Yeah. I've gone through a dot-com. I've gone through a... Millennium, a dot-com bust, okay? I've gone through a financial, global financial crisis. I've gone through a pandemic, and I think we are about to hit a big wall. I suspect it's bigger than anyone. It's not a standard recession because it's been compounded by lots of things, including economic financial mismanagement's going on right today. Look at what's going on in the Bank of England today. It's had to step in again. And if you look at all the PE firms that are being here and all the fun, you know, all, 
all, for example, a lot of growth, high growth recruitment, small high growth recruitment firms have been PE backed coming out of you know the 21 recovery. Yeah. They've hit a wall. They've hit a wall. They're hitting a wall because yeah. the PE firms have hit a wall that were behind them. And there's going to be a big shakeup coming, not just no jobs from the clients or fewer jobs, but also the funding, the cash that's keeping going, you know, grow or die. There's been grows now. They could tend to die very quickly. Um, that's, I think it's something, and I don't, you know, there's a bit of me that I've been, my attention's been kept up by being involved in crises. Um, it's, it's like my wife says, she said, you know, Laurie, you're a good crisis manager because it's really unfortunate you create most of the crises yourself. Um, <laughs> and, but these ones aren't. But I'm not looking forward to a recession. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be horrible. I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah. But it will engage. It will keep senior management near here engaged and get us through that. But, you know, we've got, you know, in, in our terms, I'm happy because I know what our balance sheet looks like. No one can look at one company's house if they want to. We've got a lot of cash. So yeah. we'll see if we go through this. But, you know, I'm glad I'm not. I'm not asking a bank manager for a bit of yes yeah, for some support. Well, just to go back on that a bit, like you made a point that said, like you know, you your life is always you kind of made very conscious decisions around where you. So, like if I look at my situation, okay, now, I think that makes you sound maybe I can a bit more controlling than I was. There's a bit of me that yeah followed the money. There's a bit of me that I like to think I that sort of almost cold headedly. Cool-headedly, cold-hearted, made sort of forensically analyzed decisions. I'm impulsive as well. I just, yeah. But what I mean, what I mean though, is that you, at a period of time, you decided that you know what, this is a part of my life. I want to experience with the family. Therefore, I'll yeah. take a slight step back, right? And I, I look at this year for me. I've got engaged, but well, get, I'm getting married. I'm buying a house. You know, hopefully, I'll have a baby in the next twelve. And that's kind of my mindset. I've got two yeah. step kids now. So, like, the business has been brilliant, but there's also been a huge foundational year for me where I'm like, you know, investing in other things. And you can't be 100% at work on when you're doing these things, right? And then, I, again, I'm, I'm coming into this period of my life, but I imagine it'll ebb and flow. There'll be periods of time where you can, you can be more focused and others where there'll just be natural distraction from outside of work. How have you, so how have you kind of kept yourself, kept in tune with yourself to make sure you're, you're giving the right amount of attention at home, at work, in different areas. Um, what well, is an age thing? My my kids are older, so as they, you know, move off and move away, um, you just take advantage of the time you have got with them. You know, yeah. it's like they say, you know, it's always good to talk to your kids while they still know everything. Um, you know, so that helps. But then also, I've been really lucky. I we live, I live at you know. We live in central London, right in central London. We live King's Cross. Wow. Yeah. I tell you what, it's very convenient for our kids who also live in London, their own places. But if they've gone out for a night out in the West End or whatever, they'll to rock up and you know, stay. So we see we see a lot of our kids still, but it's yeah. convenient. So I haven't had to make big choices either or. It's actually been and and. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's been lucky. But you just got it comes. I don't say it comes naturally. But it comes organically over time. Um, there are moments. I think there are periods. Not moments. Periods of I'm high intensity with the firm. And other periods less so. And other people pick it up there. I don't. You know. I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. I haven't got that. You know. Intensity. Okay. Yes, I haven't got it. Yeah. Um, 
and that's why he's Martin Zuckerberg. And the great thing, you know, one thing I can say about me is, it, bloody hell, it's not Martin Zuckerberg, is he? You know, and that is absolutely true. Um, I think you have to know what you're in it for and what you get out of it for and why you're doing it. And then you can reconcile it by having a single firm business, you know. Um, that's what I've been lifestyle. You know, I've had, I've only had four employers in my life and two of them have been me. So, you know, it's... You know, it's what, quite... so what happened to your original, the McGregor of the um, McGregor Boyle? What, what was the situation? She and I uh, realised that we had different goals and different directions. She wanted um, to do a different type of firm. It, it became obvious, and my phrase, the one I use, is not so much we had two captains on the bridge. We had two different compasses on the bridge. Right. Saying North was in a different direction. Each one gave me a different way to go. Hmm. Um, she, I think, well, I know, would much prefer to have a high-level search firm, executive search firm. McGregor Ball really took off financially when I said that let's go and do contracts as well as permanent hmm. And they are different up. You know, different direction, different compasses. Build a contracts business or build a search firm. At that point, it was just they weren't the same. Yeah, yeah. So we had to. I bought her out. Just bought her out. Yeah. <clears throat> and she went on set up the first firm. I can't remember. She did. So you know, good luck to her. What year was that? <clears throat> it was in our first, second, third, fourth office. Like all time, one, two, three, four, fifth office. Um. So about five years in. Right. So you've had about 30 years of being your own boss. Yeah, yeah. For better or worse. Yeah. What, what are the pros and cons of being the solo founder, leader at that level? You tell me. You're about to find out. You're probably going through it now. But the, I've got a business partner. I, I do share. Responsibility. Everyone else in that firm that you're running yeah. can come and ask you for advice, are each other guidance, command and control, or they have a colleague they can go to and moan about you. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, they can moan up. Who you know, who do I moan to? Who do I ask about? Who do I talk to? Some people have executive coaches. Um and stuff, yeah. yeah. I've tried that, it doesn't really work. You know, it hasn't worked for me. Um you know, and I wouldn't be that. It would be executive coaches. What a job that is! Having clients, no rules for clients, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, it's not loneliness, I suppose, if you want to call it that, yeah. or that sense of you're one of one. Yeah. That's that's the hardest thing, and making sure that somehow or other, you know, you look in the mirror and see what's really there. You listen to what you're saying and actually say, "Yes, I'm talking sense." Rather than, you know, you get away with murder if you're a boss. You know, it can be you can be a nice way. You can be absolutely Victorian paternalistic, you know, but it's still you've got to be careful. You don't turn into Stalin. You know, you don't yeah, care. yeah. What well, when it comes to the journey and the trajectory and the vision why like, what is it about the business that made you stay at the helm and not look to sell because it, I, i've interviewed over 200 people on the show i'd say 
90% of them say they want to exit at some point. They're the grand sale. I've talked about talked to people who have sold. I've talked to people that have just MBO'd. It's, uh, there's a very glamorous vision for most founders to, to get out of there almost as quick as they can, a lot of people. So what, what's been your reason for isn't, not... Isn't that strange? Um, I don't know the answer. And if you find out, can you let me know? But <laughs> it's, it's independent. Who would give up independence? An independence for me, no. I don't want to play golf. No. I like traveling, but as anyone who's done a sales job traveling, after a point, you've got to know traveling is a nice, interspersing traveling is great. Being perpetually on the road, trying to get sort of a fix on the latest flight is very hard to do. Yeah. I think you know, I'm engaged by it. I'm intellectually engaged by running the business. Okay. It is not down market it isn't about growth for its own sake it's about delivering a good quality product keeping there keeping it aligned to the market technology is quite interesting you know it, it changes things it not just changes what other clients use but how you work the world itself you know it's i'm just intellectually stimulated enough it business is a creative thing to do people you know i rather you want to be a business or you want to be creative business is creative you, know, you have to think on your feet. You have to think and look around corners. You know, it stimulates. And I've never been unstimulated. I've never genuinely, genuinely never been bored by the, what I do and where I do it. Okay. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Well, it's brilliant. Or it's a shortcoming. I don't know. Whether, maybe it's a fault. I don't know. No, it's not. It's not. It's a brilliant thing. To, to live life and be stimulated is yeah. possibly what we're all striving. Yeah. There are people like financial engineering. They do it for an equity flip. That's the joy of building, sell, build, sell, you know, you know, rinse, repeat. And for me, that would be rinse, repeat. But for them, it is, you know, each one is, you know, it's going like, oh, safari, you know, you shot, sorry about that, you shot another line. You Don't know, worry about fantastic. it. It's <clears throat> not why I do it. That's all yeah. Me. Yeah. It's funny because I was in, um, when I was in LA, which I was, I was, I was. <laughs> oh, you uh, know. <laughs> I was in LA, yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I was there, I was in a cab. I got an Uber. Um, interestingly about, 4 p.m. on a Wednesday, and I'm my brother's texting me, and he's in Peru at the minute, and he says, uh, "Go and go to this place, Buffalo Wild Wings." So I jump in this Uber, and I noticed the guy's the oldest Uber driver I've ever had. He was 87. I, I found that out, but he was he was um, nice guy. Said hello. Anyway, I said to him where we're going. He goes, "Do you know where? Do you know where you're going?" I was like, "Yeah." And he, oh, "I think so." And he goes, "Like just bad idea." He's like, "This place was shut down last year. The, the mall it's in for too many shootings." He's like. You know, a white tourist in this area, I just don't think it's a good shout. You can do what you want. I'll take you there, but I'd say don't go. <laughs> so I took his word. Anyway, so I said, let's go back to the hotel. So it was a slightly longer journey. And I'm really grateful because we spent about 30 minutes chatting in traffic. And 87 years old, was the, he sold, um, he started a real estate firm. And then he created a property development firm. And he sold both. And he, he retired at 58. So he said, um, and he said it was the worst decision he's ever made. Um, and I said, why? And he goes, because, you know, I had a great time for a few years with my friends and then they all died on me. Yeah, <laughs> he, but he literally lost every, he had 12 friends that all retired at a similar age, 60 ish. And they all, they all died on him. And now he's like, I, and now I'm driving Uber six days a week, not for the money. He's loaded. Right. But yeah. we can meet people. And like, he had a, such a good chat. We, it was brilliant, but he's like, and if I still had a company, you know, I wish I still had my companies. Like, I'd, I'd rather be in there for three hours a day, you know. Like you said, stimulating my brain with people that, you know. So 
I never thought of it that way. I never, I never, you know, I think that whole vision of retirement and, and exit is like, you know, financial freedom, sit on a beach, do what you want all day. Like it sounds great, doesn't it? But there's people that say, actually, once you realize that, it's very <coughs> it's incredible. Yeah, sit, I can't, you know, I'm trying to think what the opposite of what I've done in my life. And the answer is sit on the beach all day. That's yeah. the opposite. I, I can't imagine it. I can't sit on beaches. I don't do it. Do it. I get, something happens, yeah. and my body rejects sand. And, and <laughs> I'm off. I can't help it. Can you sit still though? You just have a guy that can have a oh, relax. Yeah, yeah, I can, yeah, I can sit still. I can read. I can listen to music because there's some sort of engagement there. Yeah. But <clears throat> looking at the side, remaining the same shade of blue as it was half hour ago is not my idea of engagement. <laughs> So how would you describe your input in the business now in terms of time, the the, the different things you're doing? Give us a... I've, I've stepped back from the front. Yeah. I don't see clients. I haven't seen clients in years. I still, and I've become much more operational. I've given into that bit of me that likes programming. You know, that's mm. um, so I've gone systems orientating. I'm, I'm quite interested in how we're pulling together marketing automation with our database system and with our analytic system, which sits on top of it. Um, and that's intriguing me putting that stuff through. And I also think marketing over the next 12, 18 months, marketing can come back into the frame a lot, as cool. opposed to last 18, 12, 18 months. It's been, you know, the last thing you want to do in marketing because you might end up with more vacancies and you can't. Yeah. That's what it's yeah. been like. Yeah. yeah. I think that's good. You know, that's going to be a business response. It's not idle, it's a business response. Um, communication. Uh, I was once told by someone um, who just read a very work for me, but just read their book on management. There are seven modes of management. And one of them was um, management by communication. And he said, that's what you are, Laurie. You're a manager by communication. And I said, what about the others? He said, you haven't got those, so don't worry about them. <laughs> So, okay, um, communication is important. That's the other thing is I still like, I don't have an office, I sit on the floor. Yeah. Okay. I just want to be with people. I, I walked, I, I walked the floor in the afternoon. Well, yeah, I walked the floor in the afternoons. I'm talking about, you know, pre lockdown, you know, no point walking the floor on a Friday here because you won't see anybody. But yeah. they, people used to say, used to be foot, foot marks on the floor, but I just walk up and down talking, but then doing formal communication, just talking to people. Um, and writing the communications as well. That's where I see my input really now. Yeah. Um, the only selling I ever do now is to convince people they should join the Red Corps and work for a firm. So you I still sell. meet? You still meet every every final? Not every, but I meet a lot. Yeah. And I'm asked. I meet yeah a, a lot. That's an indicator. I meet a fair few, but I'm asked mainly by directors and their group people director. Can you help get this guy like can you help me get this woman over the line? Okay, so that's the selling I do, and that's the most important thing because they're the people that they're the repeat business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. What so one of the things I wanted to talk about this season is the recession, right? And the reality of it right now and, and prediction, right? So obviously you're sat with a bird's eye view on the business, and you do I wanna I wanna find out your predictions, but if you took uh like a thermometer right now and looked at say job flow. You know, CVs out, all the all the metrics you're measuring. 
-hmm. Is it changing? And what are you seeing right now in the business? Yeah, they are changing. Um, it's getting out. Metrics are becoming important because for 20, I would say not the last three months, we can begin to see a, you can see a little bit of change, but you know, previous 15 months before that, you didn't need metrics. You knew the jobs were coming in. Mm. All we had to do really was duck, just in the case you got any more. Um, finding CVs was hard, but that was searching, that's not the metrics. Now the metrics are changing. The mood music is changing uh, on the client side. Uh, vacancies aren't new, even new vacancies, actually vacancies being reworked slightly, you know, you can just sense it out there. Um, number of, we can keep productivity up, you know, CVs sent out, out. New jobs are actually staying up, yet the numbers not being hurt yet. Yeah. But you sense the quality of those numbers by the beginning. And that's a quality of control, not an analytics control. But I think the numbers will start being hit shortly. Um, you can actually experience tells you that this is now, these numbers are fragile rather than robust. They may look the same. The totals may look the same, but you just sense they're fragile. I have this, you know, I, was back, I think I was going to put it on LinkedIn. You know, my indicator of when you're at the peak of a market and the recession is now here is the Financial Times has a publication every weekend very glossy called, well, it used to be called House Spend It, slightly distasteful title, House Spend It, it's now called HDSI, which you know, strikes me as a pointless change. But yeah. this week, they actually sent a thing on Friday saying, our addition is really thick this week, so we won't be putting it through your letterbox in case it's a problem. So we'll be leaving it outside on the doorstep. And they did it on Saturday, you know, they outside and said, sorry about this, you're know, moving it on the doorstep. And the reason being, that publication is about 100 pages of glossy advertising, of which 45% is about men's watches, okay? And you know, when that supplement in the FT with all its fashion and all its men's watches is thick, 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 that's the peak. That's the peak. It's all downhill from now. And that's happened before. It just is that because they're trying to generate their own revenue? Yeah, but it is simply, there's too much gloss around, there's too much advertising going out there at the high end, and that's the end of a boom. That's mm -hmm. the last sort of hurrah, you know, that's the band playing at midnight. You know, so what, so then what do you think is going to happen and what sort of timelines would you put on things? I think the UK is going to be, there's going to be a period, very difficult period. Someone said that we had a, a meeting, a management meeting, director meeting last week, and we all say, should we be actually focusing on finding difficult to find candidates or is it down to jobs? And someone, you know, one of you, one of your natural optimists chirped up, I think we're going into a position a month of pre weeks. It's going to be hard to find candidates and it's going to be hard to find jobs. Oh, great, you know, brilliant. <laughs> we can all go home then, can we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's going to be that for a while because there is a there is still still a shortage of candidates out there who are willing to move, but the jobs are going to be coming tighter. So it's going to be a double whammy for a couple of three months, and you can see the jobs come down and the candidate market easing, but fewer jobs. Recession, yeah, I think there'll be a recession. I think I think there's no way out of it in the UK and Europe, and increasingly it looks like the US next year. Hmm. Which is early. They thought it might be late twenty three. It could be the first. Q1, Q, Q2, uh, US recession. Just too many 
you know, perfect storms going on out there. You know, just too many of them. Um, and I think it's not if it's the the depth and the length of the recession that's coming, and whether they're synchronized global or not. Okay, so um, there will be certain areas that avoid it. I think the Middle East will avoid it, the region, because they the oil price will be such that that will sustain no. uh, a deep, but it's not big enough to be influential in our business. It, it's good that we've got a Dubai office and you know the Saudi and the great things and you know like that, but it's not enough. So I think it's going to be. A difficult time, you know, that old cliche that came last time around, you know, when the tide goes out, we'll find out who's wearing swimming trunks. Yeah. Um, it's going to be one of those tides going out for a bit. Yeah. So we have to, people have to earn their money. It's not shooting fish in the barrel anymore. You know, it's going to be, tough. and it, you know, it could be brutal. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing the dress, I'm doing the dress to troops at a short one tomorrow morning to say, talking about what I think might be coming. Around the corner, a little bit over What changes would you make as a business? What what would what would be the obvious things you'll do to make sure you're fit for well, it? Well, I can tell you what we are doing, which is we are continuing with our hiring plans. We had we put our hiring plan together at the end of 21, um, several months in. Um, I, and they were they weren't we're going for a triple, no, they weren't PE hiring plans. Okay, we're going to triple in size in the next 10 months and hire, hire, hire and fire, churn, and all those things. We did, so not what we are. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we, we're sustaining those. I think there's enough out there to, to be got if you go and get it, get the right people, find it and deliver it. And also, we know what our cash reserves are. Hmm. You know, we can see our way through it. So that's what I'm sustaining. People, it won't be easy, but it's sustainable. Don't over hire. Don't, you know, going for growth right now. I we, well, I'm not going to go, well, here's going to be an opportunity in the market. And the, the old the old phrase, you know, it's crippled to a waste of a good recession. Yeah, well, that's not like, you know, sometimes recessions are, avoid them if you can. Don't just gleefully go on and say, you know, it's wonderful. I'm not looking forward to a recession. I like a good crisis, but mm. I'm not stupid enough to think crises are good for the soul. They're not, okay? Yeah. Um, so I think it's tough. I think you've got to you've got to think about staff retention. I think about what people are thinking out there with work for you, what's going through there, especially younger people. We've got we've hired people who come into recruitment after lockdown, not even yeah. during, after lockdown. They have no idea what could hit them. Yeah. Now I could make all sorts of comments about you know Gen Z are about to find out what life's really like, you know, but I won't make those comments. You know, we'll, we'll, but they are. It's going to it is going to be difficult. Well, one question I have, which I've asked on most of these episodes, is what do you do about expectation management? So if you think about it, for someone who has joined the business in lockdown or post-lockdown, or even even your guy who's been in recruitment 10 years and has had his record year or eight, yeah. I, you know, do you, how do you set expectation based on your, you must be used to certain people performing at a certain level yourself as a company. So do you go, we look at pre-pandemic levels now as our expectation of 2023, or do you, do people just have to work harder to stay where they were? Like, what, how do you approach that? Well, as I say, we've got, we've got a fantastic group of people, director. We've got someone who works for her as well, who continues, we have a continuous monitoring system. And monitoring system like we expect, you know, it's actually, you know, PDRs, personal development reviews, and we're doing it directly, you know, what's appropriate, what do we expect? People, 
you know, it's the old cliche, no one should ever get fired by surprise. You know, that mm. happen because people know what's going on. Transparency is so critical now. And it really is critical now because the world, for especially the first time in, not people who have been around you know, pre-pandemic, but come in since, they have no realistic idea of what could be coming, what the world is normally like in recruitment. They're in one market. And they, they're not going to believe anyone who tells them otherwise. Okay. In theory, they'll say yes, they'll nod, but they'll be going, yes, yes, yes. They're really shaking because they can't believe it and they're going to get hit. Only have to decide, is someone up for it? Are they up for it? If they are, how do you support them? If they're generally up for it, how do you support them? Because you've got to get through it. You can't bleed your staff out. You can't bleed your staff out. Or if you're, you're left behind, as everyone's found out, I can't yeah, believe yeah. after the pandemic. And pandemic is what, that was the, that was the most dramatic anyone's ever seen, including chances of the Exchequer, who were, you know, relatively right-wing Tories who turned out handing out so much money like a left-wing government. And you say, Richie Sunak turned into Jeremy Corbyn, didn't realise he was doing it. And that's fine, you know, as a, you know, I know where I sit on the political spectrum, it's not the, it's the Sunak. So that, that's okay. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting one, a tough one. Uh, I am not, not more or less optimistic more logical, less optimistic. I'm just thinking it's going to be a bit more dramatic and severe than I thought initially. Okay, about it. I thought it was coming, but I thought it'd be a flattening or relatively shallow, relatively short. I'm not so sure that's true anymore. Interesting. What What's the vision then for the long term? So if you look at as far as you can ahead for. Well, I, I don't look far ahead. I think 24 months is all I ever look at. Right. You know, uh, I'm not. I, I'm not a vision person. I don't have visions. Um, quite literally, um, the way I, I'm. I'm not retiring, so that's that. I'm going to keep going. I make sure my health is good. It's can built. You know, I know whatever the firm's in good hands in terms of succession planning. All those good things. Blah, blah, blah. But I'm a first. You know, I say I'm a first responder. I'm not. I don't see anything far ahead. The latest. But I guess the. When I can see something that needs doing, and that's money that they get there quickly. But I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a creator. I'm a first responder. Okay, right. and that's what I'm. That's what the 24 months is enough for me. So where do you want to be in 20? If we, if we were to bring you back on in 20, which I'd love to in person. I want to be established one way or another in the U.S. in sufficient muscle to respond to the recovery. Okay, because there will be a recovery after the recession in the US. And when the US recovers, my God, it recovers. Okay, mm. you know, that all that. What have you got out there now? Anything? Nothing. That's no. a great thing. You've not Starting even got your old you 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 basement in California that you could get people into. No, no, I wouldn't go that far, go East Coast. You know, we're fine. You know, we are not pure tech in the sense of California tech. And so like, yeah. you know, we're, we're financial markets, hedge fund. Yeah. algorithmic trading tech you know we're yeah. as i say we're two postcodes we're broadgate and canary's wolf here they know we want equipment it isn't by the way it's not all new york anymore so many are going down to florida and chicago is still good for trading mm. um so I, you know we're putting our foot in as everyone else is just you know catching a cold and we actually are quite looking forward to that quite right. and then hopefully we just about got it right by the time the market comes back in a rush and it tends to come back with a rush in the us you know they that that yeah, every, the, all the can doism or we can do it againism of the US. You know, that's it. That's a bit of my that's where I really admire. I love it. Right, last question. 
and I'll okay. let you go. So when, when I'd say the majority of listeners throughout this show have been people that are either at the very beginning of their journey as a founder or actually those that have not even started yet. Now, there are lots of people listening all over the world that are established as yourself and, you know, different stages. But I'd say the majority, the most questions I get asked are from people that are really in the early days. So if you had to give three words of wisdom or three pieces of advice based on the 35 years you've had of, as the, you know. Three? Jesus Christ. Just three. One. Yeah, well, well, whatever you can no, give. I'm lucky to find one. Um, have some idea of why you set the firm up and why you, what you want to do with it. I, why do you set it up? Have you set it up to make money, get in, get out quickly? Have you set it up to have, like I did, I didn't probably realize it, but I have a lifelong involvement with it and align what you do operationally with those goals and get them right. So if it's going to be rapid growth and get out and stuff, then realize that what type of journey that will be. And they'll tell you what it will be. It'll be rapid growth, it'll be a lot of turbulence, mm. okay? And strap on, strap in, you know, and you'll be fine. If on the other hand, you want a longer, you know, a longer journey where you get to cruise control, you get to the right altitude, you know, you get the cruising altitude, then prepare for that and have your treat, hire people and treat people the way that's appropriate for that. Because it's all about the people, you know, it's not about, it's not about business plans, you know, it's about you know, a recruitment firm's business plan is its hiring plan. Okay. Paper clips don't count for a lot. Okay. You know, you can get serviced offices. It's about people costs, and people planning, and people hiring. Anyone who forgets that won't run a successful recruitment company. Yeah. That's, that's the only one. It's about people. Isn't the cliche? Isn't that great? It's real. That's it. That's what's going to make you money or what's going to actually send you bust. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. That's what people need to think about, right? That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. It isn't. And it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't. And also, by the way, uh, stay engaged. Don't do it as a pure bunny spinner. Okay, you can try that. And some people do that and it's fine. It's right for them, but they are so, so rare compared to most people who are going to be a bit longer than they thought. And they've got to make sure they don't, you know, they don't screw themselves. Okay. Yeah, I love it. Laurie, bit of pleasure. I'm okay. so grateful we managed to get this in. I know we've been trying for a, for a few weeks and we've had a few false starts, but um, if anyone does want to reach out to you after listening yeah. to this, because there's potential of that. What, what, where can they find you? And would you be open yeah. to a chat with people? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. Lots of things my name right. B-O-Y-A-L-L. There aren't many of us. Yeah. So they can do that. Reach out. It'd be fine. Reach out on LinkedIn. All right. I'll tag you in everything that we do. Laurie, it's been a pleasure, mate. And we'll get you on in person in a couple of years and see if you realize those ambitions, okay? Okay, fine. You take care. That's for Thank you, as always, for listening to today's show. I truly, truly hope that you got value from it. That's the only reason I take time every week is to ensure that my audience, future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. Today's episode was brought to you by Hoxo Media. I am the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media, and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2,000 recruiters right now, both managing the brands, producing content, building written video podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level 
individual recruiters in your businesses how to be better on LinkedIn. That's how to brand themselves. That's how to produce content. That's how to use the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business. We're coaching people all over the world every single day. If any of that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean Anderson, a personal message on LinkedIn. I would love to talk to you. I'll see you soon.